Hello, and welcome to Beyond the Breakers, a podcast about shipwrecks, loss, and lessons learned from maritime disasters. My name is Taylor, and I'll be your host. And first off, like always, we want to say thank you for your support, and we're happy that you're checking out uh, our creation. Hope you guys are enjoying it. Real quick, like we always do, I'll shout out the social media. It's Beyond the Breakers Podcast on Instagram, beyondthebreakerspod at gmail.com. And we do have a Patreon. It's patreon.com slash beyondthebreakers. With that stuff out of the way, I'll go ahead and introduce my co-host, Tanner. Tanner, how you doing? Oh, I'm doing okay. I turned 30 this week. So That's what I say. I know it was a, it was a all, birthday week. It was a big one. All things considered, uh, doing okay, <laughs> I think. Nice, nice. Yeah, it's a nice sunny morning here in Ohio. Things are looking pretty nice. It's going to be sort of warm today. It's a it's a good day. We've we've had frost the last few mornings. My car is my car had snow on it the other day in the morning. That's what you get for living in Wisconsin. So, speaking of Wisconsin, we'll actually uh, stay uh, on Lake Michigan this week. I know we were there last week, and we'll uh, we'll be doing it again this week. This week, we will be discussing the PS Lady Elgin. PS stands for paddle steamer. So think kind of like a riverboat, but a little different. Have you uh, have you heard this story before? Is this a story you're familiar with? This is one that I knew, but I didn't really know a lot about. The, I think the only reason I knew the name is because when I was a kid, I remember had uh, I was really into puzzles. You probably mm-hmm. remember that. I Do you remember I had a Great Lakes shipwreck puzzle? I think I, I do remember that. Puzzle. I think I did yeah. and undid several times. And uh, I, I do remember that name being on that. And for some reason, it stuck in my head. So, yes, yeah. I had, I'd heard of it, but I didn't really know a lot of the details. And I still don't because I haven't read the notes. It's a pretty big one as far as like like local to like Chicago and Milwaukee, the city identities and everything. It's it's mm-hmm. a pretty well-known event. Yeah, but let's, let's dig into it. Let's uh, start where we always do. Let's start with a little information about the ship. She's built in 1851 in Buffalo, New York. And she's owned by a Gurdon Hubbard. And he is actually a very influential man in the development of the city of Chicago. In addition to owning the Lady Elgin, he was also a fur trader, insurance underwriter, and land speculator. He was also an alderman for Chicago's 7th Ward. So he was pretty heavily involved in the establishing of Chicago and the early years of Chicago. And it's you know, not even knowing that this is going to be a massive city. It's just another little lake town, really. That's a solid set of 1800s professions. He's got there. Yeah, yeah. Like, like the a, 1800s a fur trader, time. A fur trader and a land speculator. Yeah, like, I think that's the only time in America's history you could probably do all those things and then be like, <laughs> oh, I'm going to do government too. Yeah. So the vessel's built for $95,000, and it's actually named after the wife of Lord Elgin, uh, Canada's governor general from 1847 to 1854. Can I just jump in with a pronunciation note for yes. our listeners? So yes. we are aware that the Lord... And lady is pronounced Elgin, as in like the uh, the Elgin marbles, which I believed were acquired by this guy's father. But we will be using the American pronunciation of Elgin because I don't think we could train ourselves to say the British way. And the town in Illinois is referred to as Elgin. That's where that's what I'm going with. And you got Elgin Baylor, so we're going we're yes. going with Elgin. All right. So she's a wooden hold side wheeler. So think of a paddle steamer like the Sultana. Think of like a riverboat. The main difference is that the paddles are located on the side of the ship rather than behind it. Does it have a paddle on each side or just one side? Um, I actually can't remember in this case. I think it might only be on one side, okay. but there's a few different designs with these things. But they're similar to a riverboat, but it's 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 different. Mm-hmm. But it's the same principles, you know, at play there. 
So she runs a regular route between Chicago and Buffalo for the first part of her career. She kind of just, you know, does regular service between those cities. And later she sails between Chicago and Collingwood, Ontario. And then actually at the time of her sinking, she's running between Chicago and just various other lake ports on uh, Lake Michigan. So the key is that she she's very well known in Chicago. It's a it's a vessel that the citizens of Chicago use frequently, and it's actually a pretty luxurious ship. Like it's it's known for its amenities and things like that throughout mm-hmm. most of its career. Well, let's get into kind of the the final days and the final voyage of the vessel. So on the evening of September sixth, eighteen sixty, the Lady Elgin left Milwaukee bound for Chicago. Anyone that's familiar with the geography of Wisconsin and Illinois knows that's not a very far trip. You can drive it in like an hour and a half. So, you know, this isn't the longest voyage that she's done, but it's it's what she's doing that day. And she's actually carrying members of Milwaukee's Union Guard who were on their way to hear political speeches in support of Stephen Douglas, Abraham Lincoln's opponent in the upcoming presidential election. So the Union Guard was an Irish militia unit based out of the Third Ward in Milwaukee. And the militia had recently had their arms confiscated by the state of Wisconsin. So kind of the, the, I don't know a ton about this, and there's a lot of deep state politics here, you know, in 1860. But basically, they weren't as radical as a lot of the other abolitionists were in Wisconsin. But they weren't like pro-Confederacy or anything. They were pro-slavery or anything like that either. Okay. But they just weren't quite as extreme as some of the other parts of Wisconsin were. I just have this image of Governor Tony Evers just walking up to the Union Guard and like very, very nicely asking them to please, please uh, give up their weapons. <laughs> uh, like, Basically, they were more interested in the well-being of the Irish working class than than any other issues that were going on. And that mm-hmm. kind of upset some people in the state of Wisconsin. On a side note, the third word of Milwaukee has been developed into a really beautiful part of town. There's a lot of restaurants, breweries, the Milwaukee public market. It's probably one of my favorite places to go in Milwaukee. And I don't know. I think it's a really it's a really nice place. But that's where they were based out of back in 1860. So the voyage to Chicago was pretty uneventful. She carried between three and four hundred people. And this included men, women, children, because this was actually something of like a fundraiser and everything. They were trying to raise money to you know rearm themselves. And they were also going to go listen to political speeches and, you know, kind of network and that kind of thing. What all children uh, like political speeches. <laughs> I mean, there wasn't much to do in 1860, I suppose. <laughs> It is noted, too, though, that some of the passengers were not part of the Union Guard. Herbert Ingram was a British member of Parliament. And there were also five dozen cattle in the hold of the ship. And they were being tended to by a farm boy. And, you know, there's there's just a regular people going about regular business also. So a majority of them are part of that Union Guard group. But there are some people that are just there to, you know, get to where they need to go. Mm-hmm. Overall, the atmosphere on board is very jovial and party-like. Again, there's not much to do in 1860, so this is like a big community thing. Like, if you're anyone that has anything to do with the Irish community is going to be part of this uh, trip. There's bands, there's dancing, there's drinking. You know, it's it's very much a party. Final numbers are hard to pin down as to how many people were on board the vessel because tickets that were not sold were actually given away and those names weren't recorded. So, you know, it got down towards the end. They had a few tickets left over. They started just handing those out to people in the community just to make sure that they made a good showing. Gotcha. The group spent the day of September 7th listening to speeches and networking in Chicago. And after a day of all of that, uh, around midnight, so we're into September 8th, right at midnight, the Lady Elgin departs Chicago for its return trip to Milwaukee. So 
the mood on board is still very joyful and party-like, but it's also mixed with some people who have, you know, they've kind of had their fill and a lot of people are sleeping and the ship's fairly crowded, but you know, it's not standing room only. There's still people finding little corners to sleep in and there's, there's cabins and things like that as well. It's, it's very mixed. (laughs) Unfortunately, weather conditions at this point are not optimal for travel. According to second mate Beeman, the night was intensely dark. The rain was falling in torrents. The lightning was vivid and thunder incessant. Literally a dark and stormy night. It is a dark, yes, it's a dark and stormy night. There were gale force winds. And although dangerous, this isn't something uncommon to the ship's crew. I think we've hit on that quite a bit with sailing, that if you only sailed in good weather, you would really never sail. So it's not great weather, but it's also nothing that they're, they haven't experienced before. Around 2.30 a.m. on September 8th, the Lady Elgin is suddenly rammed by a lumber schooner named Augusta of Oswego. Hmm. It's a pretty cool name for a ship, actually. It is, and obviously not for me, because I know what it is, but can you explain to the audience what a schooner is? Uh, it's just a type of vessel. Like a sail- This is like a sailing ship, right? Yeah, yeah, it's going to be like a sailing ship. It's not like a steamer or something like that. It's kind of one of the final iterations of like a ship of sail. Okay. Cool. Asking uh, for a friend here. <laughs> so moments before the collision, the helmsmen of each ship sight each other. So it's kind of one of those things. It's almost like in a car accident. If you have someone turn right in front of you, like you both see each other, but there's nothing you can do about it, actually, mm-hmm. uh, which has to be a pretty bad feeling. The Lady Elgin's crew cries out hard a port to the Augusta, but the Augusta is either either unable or does not respond to this alert. And there's a little bit of debate as to, you know, were they ignoring this or were they unable to? So, like, a lot of the, the one of the theories is that it's possible that the cargo shifted, that the lumber shifted on the Augusta, and that made her unable to maneuver in the, the dangerous conditions. So in this in this situation, you have so the, the crew cries out hard a port. Is this supposed to be an instruction to the other ship? Yeah, they're yelling at the other ship, basically. To like, I mean, I guess, like, although they, they probably course. are both doing this. So they're telling the other ship to turn. Right, and they're, all, they're turning also to counter right. that. So. Okay. At the time of the incident, the Lady Elgin is clearly and brightly illuminated. So that, that's something that's clearly stated in multiple sources, that the Lady Elgin is, should have been very visible, even in these conditions. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's dangerous, it's nasty, but she's a clearly lit passenger vessel. It's also noted that the Augusta is only illuminated with a single white light. It's pretty shocking that you would be sailing in basically blackout conditions. Like, like just a lantern? Or like a- yeah, like, like a single lantern. And it's actually not even called a lantern. I don't know what the light source is, because they'll discuss lanterns in a little bit. But the, it's noted that there's only one small white light. Not one of those tactical flashlights you see on the TV commercials? <laughs> no, not like that. <laughs> but, you know, it's important here to note that if the Lady Elgin could have seen the Augusta, she could have also, you know, done more to counter whatever the Augusta was doing. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it works both ways that just because the Lady Elgin was brightly lit, you know, that's 50%. But if both vessels are lit, they can work together to avoid things, mm-hmm. especially if the Augusta is having an issue that's not allowing it to steer properly. So the Augusta struck the Lady Elgin on the port side, leaving a massive hole below the Elgin's waterline. I think we've done enough ramming incidents where we've realized that the vessel that does the ramming tends to fare better, and the vessel that gets rammed tends to fare worse. Mm -hmm. 
You want to be delivering the blow. Yes, you want to deliver the blow. If this happens. Augusta sustained damage to her bow. However, she's able to free herself. And she believes that the damage to the Lady Elgin is minimal. And because of that, the Augusta immediately proceeded to Chicago to get out of the bad weather and to inspect her damage. This part's a little different than some of the rammings that we've read about. She doesn't stop and render aid. I don't know. I don't know anything about the situation or what this actually looks like. But it seems like if your ship just slammed into another ship, like, wouldn't it be obvious that it has sustained a fair amount of damage? I mean, it should be. But also, if the hole's below the waterline and it's stormy and... I guess it's it's dark, too, though, so I guess you can't really see that. To be fair, I'm sure the crew of the Augusta is worried about their own vessel. They don't know what the extent of their damage is, necessarily. Mm -hmm. But it is surprising to see them render no aid whatsoever and immediately leave the scene. They just leave. Like they just like, it's out. almost like a hit and run. Hmm. But fortunately we're going to talk about who I feel is probably the, the best captain out of any that we've discussed so far hmm. um, in the series. So captain Wilson of the lady Elgin reacts immediately. His first step is that he orders the cattle to be thrown overboard. Oh, <laughs> and this is to raise the water line of the ship. So you figure, you know, cows are pretty heavy. And if there's dozens of cows in the hold, you know, you can reduce the draft of the vessel by throwing them overboard. So that is step one. I don't think they swim very well either, do they? They don't. No, they do not. Spoiler alert. They do not swim well. They do float eventually, however. We'll get there. The steward of the ship is sent down to the coal bunker to attempt to plug the hole with mattresses and any other items that can be found aboard. So they're immediately trying to do damage control. They're trying to, you know, get this to a workable situation. They're also trying to get the engines refired. They can't do that because the boilers and everything are being flooded by the water. Mm-hmm. So we also know that losing power is bad. That's another running theme. Don't lose power in a storm. Don't lose power in a storm. Captain Wilson then ordered a lifeboat to be lowered to the starboard side to check damage to the steamer. Crewman Michael Smith stated the following. He then ran back to the cabin to arouse the sleepers and get them on the hurricane deck. Many staterooms were fastened, and he broke them in with an axe, exhorting the sleepers, many of whom had been drinking a good deal, to rouse up and save themselves. So the captain's running around the ship, knocking down doors getting people up and getting people up to the hurricane deck, which the hurricane deck is like the top deck of the ship. Hmm. So that's where you would want to be as it goes down. That's a rough way to be woken up when you're trying to sleep one off. Yeah. Yeah. It's not a great day. Dude dude breaks into your cabin with an ax. Also think about how much you'd have to drink and how blacked out you have to be to sleep in a gale like storm Mm -hmm. on the great lakes. Uh, The crew is unable to get the lady Elgin under power again. And therefore, they're not able to sail towards the shore. That's another order that the captain had issued, is that he wants to get this ship as close to shore as possible, because he's not sure how long they're going to have. And he's correct to have that suspicion. Within 30 minutes of the incident, the Lady Elgin begins to break up. Lieutenant George Hartsuff stated, The hurricane deck floated off, and the vessel went to the bottom with a tremendous noise. And he's actually not affiliated with the vessel. He's a lieutenant in the army. So he's just moving for a different assignment. Uh-huh. But he's, he's just one of those regular people that happens to be on the ship. And what he's describing is the hurricane deck actually becomes separated from the, the vessel as the vessel breaks apart and goes down. Mm-hmm. And this actually becomes a raft for the passengers. So it breaks mm-hmm. into two pieces uh, eventually. But they, the two pieces actually float next to each other. 
I read a lot of different accounts and the numbers for this incident, because it's, you know, we're back into the 1860s where there's just not a lot of hard and fast numbers necessarily. Mm-hmm. It sounds to me like there were between 30 and 50 people on this hurricane deck. This seems so strange to me. Like, it seems it seems bizarre. The top deck just kind of comes off, but then it still, like, floats well enough to act as a raft. I'm amazed that it uh, just works that way. I mean, it's just a large, flat piece a of wood. A big piece of wood? Yeah. And it, I read some reports, too, that, like, there were men who, like, you know, took firefighting axes and kind of hacked away at the supports to help it separate and mm-hmm. things. You can read eight different accounts of this and hear eight different stories about little details and things that happened. Cause we're, again, we're in that part of history where there's a good basis of fact, but there's also a lot of, you know, right. fiction mixed in. But the point is that the hurricane deck becomes separated and the passengers use that as a raft. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's also noted that the life preservers were never actually used. And I couldn't believe it as I was reading it. These are worse than the cork ones. It's literally just a five foot long piece of hardwood that floats. Oh, so like literally any other piece of the ship that you could grab onto. Yeah, we'll get to that part. (laughs) So fortunately, you know, the vessel's not too far offshore. And the way that the current and the winds are working, the survivors are actually being pushed towards the shore. So that's a good thing. Right. Until it isn't good anymore. Although the survivors were being swept towards the shore, this presented a new problem. The rough breakers and surf that the gale whipped up near the shore. And this would actually prove deadly for many of the Lady Elgin survivors. You know, you can imagine that, you know, you're, you're a hundred feet from the shore. You can see the shore being silhouetted against the morning light and it gets worse. Like this is the worst part. This starts to, to give me memories a little bit of the Admela. Yeah. Different situation, but it's like the fact that you're so close to shore doesn't necessarily help you in this situation. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't mean that you're safe just because you're near the shore. There's reports of people clinging to pianos, bass drums, and even dead cattle as they're floating ashore. You know, it's literally anything that can float. For some reason, um, it's bizarre to me that a piano would float, but I guess it's mostly wood. So, makes yeah, sense. I don't know. It is. It is a wood. I guess. I guess you don't ask too many questions when when that's yeah. the thing floating by. <laughs> I wouldn't be having that mental conversation if, if that's what I needed to survive, probably. Another issue in the in the breakers in the surf is that large sections of the ship are also washing up at the same time. There's a report of at least one man who was being who was killed after being struck by a large section of timber. Hmm. So you know you're being tossed and thrown around, but there's also you know two by fours and things being thrown around too. Hmm. It's a pretty dangerous scene. This is also where the captain Captain Wilson continues to kind of shine and show you know his dedication to what he was doing he actually ends up on that hurricane deck raft and he you know he obviously takes charge there's an account by one of the ship's crew by the name of smith who was on the same raft he says this about the captain he says he was walking about cheering and directing the passengers part of the time with a child in his arm just before entering the breakers i heard him say now boys look out for the breakers a moment later the raft broke and we saw no more of him so he's literally trying to direct and encourage everyone until the end. And I can, I'm sure that, you know, his actions helped save a lot of people that day. Unfortunately, he does not survive, but he is continuing to push people and to try to, to get people in a position to survive. One of Lady Elgin's lifeboats was able to land near shore or, or sorry, on shore near Winnetka. 
and that it's near Northwestern. It's all it, nowadays it all kind of runs together. Evanston, Winnetka, those places. Mm-hmm. Back then they were separate little communities. So word spreads to the students of Northwestern University, which is in Evanston. And more specifically, the Garrett Biblical Institute, which is on campus there. I guess they had a lot of students, you know, on campus at that time. Mm-hmm. They actually respond and attempt to save survivors from the surf. One of these heroes is a man by the name of Edward Spencer. Uh, with the help of his brother, William, he ties a rope around his waist and enters the water to rescue survivors. He's credited with saving 17 people. And he actually has to be carried back to his dorm room by his brother, where he collapsed from exhaustion. So this guy is repeatedly going into the water and dragging people back. And in order to do that, he's actually, you know, he's tied off and he's being pulled back at times, you know, to, to carry people to safety. Right. Unfortunately, uh, at the time, we didn't really know what PTSD was, but he's definitely a sufferer from it. Uh, just kind of judging by how his life goes on after that. He's plagued with guilt for the rest of his life for not saving more people. And he's actually physically scarred from this as well. He, um, it's not very clear. I couldn't find a ton of details if he's immediately wheelchair bound, but definitely later in his life he is. And he actually drops out of divinity school and moves to California after this incident. So it was clearly a, a major, you know, event for him. Right. He is actually recognized for this though, throughout his life. And later in life, he's actually presented with a degree from Northwestern university for his bravery. So it is nice to see that, you know, he, he was recognized, but it's definitely an incident that he carried with him through the, for the rest of his life. Mm-hmm. And actually, his brother, William, did continue with divinity school. He became a, a preacher and was pretty well known. He published a lot of tracts and pamphlets. And one of the pamphlets that he ended up writing was titled, He Did His Best. And it actually is about his brother, and it uses it as kind of a moral parable and everything. So it's mm-hmm. kind of interesting that his brother is able to... I don't know, almost make more sense out of it all, but Edward definitely had some issues from it. Right. All right, let's talk some numbers. The number of people varies from source to source. I found anywhere from 300 to 500 people could have been on board the vessel. Mm-hmm. And it's generally agreed upon that there are around 96 survivors of the wreck. Most sources I saw were somewhere right around that. Most of them were pretty specific to 96, but nothing was really over 100. Of these survivors, only eight of them were women, and I couldn't find a figure on the number of children who survived, and I would assume that that would not be good. I would assume mm. that probably meant zero. Right, uh, you think I don't that, would know be, the, that would be probably mentioned Yeah, I feel like there would be newspaper accounts. You know, obviously this plays huge in the press in the 1860s. At least right away it does. Uh, it's quickly overshadowed by larger national events like uh, the secession of the, <laughs> the southern states and everything, old, but at least... Big, big old war. <laughs> At least early on, this is massive news in Chicago and Milwaukee, and it may, it continues to be for you know weeks and months afterwards. Mm-hmm. I did find a newspaper account that one man, his body washes up on shore of his own property that sat on Lake Michigan. Mm-hmm. I don't think I believe that story. It sounds almost too good to be true. I would Any, agree with that assessment, probably. It's kind of one of those things where I'm sure they want to put out as much content as they can about this incident afterwards, and if that's what they can do that day to sell a newspaper... yeah. You know, you might walk by that and pick it up and buy it that day. Yeah, I feel like news strategy hasn't changed a lot. No, nope, yeah. <laughs> so, obviously, Milwaukee's Irish community is filled with rage at this point. They, you know, they want to know why the Augusta did not stop and render assistance. 
think I, I rightfully so I've kind of had the same questions as I was doing this research. It just doesn't feel the same as a lot of the other incidents that we've gone mm-hmm. uh, even in the case of the Empress of Ireland, where the captain is basically ready to fight the other vessel's captain when he gets rescued. Like they at least attempt to rescue him. Yeah, it seems, I mean, it just seems very strange. Like, you know, not personally knowing much about the situation and, and how those things worked at the time, but it's like, it just seems like that sort of common decent behavior we would expect, you know, like what you mentioned, like, like, like a hit and run. It's expected that if you hit something with a vehicle, you stop and you, you check and see how, like what's going on. I don't know. It's, it's just, yeah, it's a very, it's just a very strange. And like you said, sort of abnormal for the stories we've seen with collisions where the other ship, if possible, tends to sort of jump right into rendering aid. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is really interesting. So the owners of the vessel, the Augusta, are actually fearful for their lives. And they actually are also fearful that the vessel will be burned at port. So they promptly mm-hmm. repaint it and sell it, which <laughs> probably a good decision. Yeah. This event is also cited as a turning point in Milwaukee history. Um, this leads to the rise of the German ethnic groups becoming more influential in city politics and city culture. And I would say nowadays, Milwaukee is definitely thought of as a German town mm-hmm. culturally, uh, having lived there and everything. I mean, there's all kinds of Oktoberfests and, you know, the, the German beer culture and, mm-hmm. and sausage and that kind of thing. Those are all things that are pretty heavy in Milwaukee's identity. And it's strange, but this is one of the events that kind of leads in that turning point to it being a more German city. The Irish community ends up losing most of its experienced and most powerful community leaders in this incident. And that's huge. You know, that that's what leads to that kind of that kind of change. Yeah, this is really interesting because, like, really, I I really did not know that there was such a vibrant, thriving Irish community in Milwaukee. Right. Uh, you know, up to a certain point. So, th- I mean, this is really interesting because because, like you said, I I've read a little bit of, of Milwaukee's history. But, yeah, you, you kind of always read about and you always hear about Milwaukee. And, and kind of the whole upper Midwest, more German than Irish. So this is really mm-hmm. fascinating to learn about. Yeah, it really is. And the same thing, yeah, it, it being someone who's lived in Milwaukee for a good chunk of my life, it's not like there aren't Irish cultural things there. I mean, there's Irish fests and a lot of Irish you know, heritage. Mm-hmm. But it sounds like, it, at least in 1860, it's a much more vibrant community than than what you would have expected. It kind of acted as an extension of the Chicago Irish community. And actually both communities did lose people in this incident. So let's talk a little bit more about the aftermath of the sinking. The owner of the Lady Elgin accepted an insurance payment of $12,000, but he actually retained ownership of the wreck. He never declared it a total loss. I'm not really sure why. I don't know what his angle was, but uh, it was technically still owned by him. So is that basically uh, just a, a, a way to, I mean, I assume just like protect any, anything possible that could have been saved from the wreck. I suppose it, so. It's, it's a way of, it's a way of keeping someone from trying to strip artifacts away is, from it or, you know, this is still mine. Salvage it. Hands, hands off. Yeah, basically. Um, the captain of the Augusta was arrested on charges of navigational negligence, but he's actually found not guilty. Probably one of those scenarios where, you know, he's not guilty beyond... Is he guilty? Probably. But is it guilty beyond a reasonable doubt? Like, can you prove it? Mm-hmm. The second mate of the Augusta, however, ended up shouldering most of the blame. He was a man by the name of Mr. Budge. Mr. Budge. Yeah. He um, he and the crew end up being blamed for most of it. I didn't find an account of if he's charged with anything. I don't think he is, but 
I'm sure he's kind of blacklisted in the maritime community going forward. And there's actually a claim that a $15 lantern could have prevented this accident. That if the Augusta had had just a, you know, a lantern or two hung with, and it had additional lighting, this would have allowed the Lady Elgin to see her and avoid her. You know, both ships could have acted to avoid each other. So even mm-hmm. if the Augusta had issue that prevented it from, you know, responding and handling the way that it normally would, the Lady Elgin could see and avoid. Mm-hmm. And then in 1864, there's actually a legal ruling in maritime courts that all vessels must carry running lights. And this is where you begin to see the implementation of a standardized, you know, lighting system and things just becoming, you know, more standard throughout uh, throughout fleets, mm-hmm. which is good. You know, if, if everyone's running on the same standards, then these kind of incidents should be much more avoidable. Running lights and, being lights like on the outside of a vessel. Yeah. Yeah. Just like the basic lights that allow you to know that there's another vessel there where you're positioned relative to that vessel, that kind of thing. Like the ones that are now like red and green. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, this isn't necessarily establishing that, but that's right. what it ultimately becomes is you've okay. got your port and starboard lighting. So that way you can know, like if you see a green light, you know where you should be relative to that ship. Right. Okay. So a little bit more about the vessel itself. The wreck of the Lady Elgin is discovered in 1989 off of Highwood, Illinois, and it's discovered by a man named Harry Zyke. Zyke is actually awarded ownership in 1999 after a legal battle, and I didn't dig into the details of what that was. I'm sure that there was probably some insurance companies trying to make claims that they possibly had a chance um, to claim it as theirs. Um, could have been, you know, extended family from the man that originally owned the ship, but Basically, to dive on that wreck site now, you have to obtain this Harry Zyke's permission because he is the legal owner of the vessel. Hmm. The ship lies in about 50 feet of water, so it is very diveable, and it's actually a very popular dive site. So it's interesting to me, and I didn't know until recently when I was on the, uh, the Wisconsin Maritime Museum website, I'm amazed at how well some of these, even these really old ships are still preserved in the Great Lakes. Yeah, um, the Great Lakes in particular, being freshwater and fairly cold water, a lot of these wrecks stay preserved for a very long time. Like you would be surprised at how well preserved they are compared to a salt water. Salt yeah, water like because I, I, I think I saw something the other day about like I guess it was the Titanic I was reading about um, about how like how little of it there is just because of the salt water. And so yeah, reading about that on that museum website, it's, it's crazy how some of these really old vessels, even the ones that are primarily wooden, how much there still is. Yeah. If you go back and look at pictures of some of the great lakes wrecks that we've covered, like the Milwaukee or even the Carl D Bradley, some of them, some of the pictures, it just looks like the ship's sitting underwater. Mm -hmm. And these are boats that have been down there for a long time. Yeah. Um, I'll try to see if I can't find some pictures of the lady Elgin to post on the Instagram. um, So you guys can kind of see what it looks like. You know, if you were to dive on it nowadays, I think, like you said, most people would be surprised that how preserved these artifacts are. Mm -hmm. That's the story of the Lady Elgin. It was kind of one that grabbed me this week. Sometimes, you know, when you're going through these, there's just some that we know that we want to do. And then other times you're kind of just reading the story and one jumps out. And like, I know that I have to do that one. And that's kind of how this one was this week. I just... This is a story I was aware of, but not one that I knew fully. And then kind of reading through it, it definitely jumped out and grabbed me. Uh, there's just a lot of 
history kind of rolled up into one one event here when you've got something that's Civil War adjacent. You got the election of 1860. You've got Abraham Lincoln and Stephen Douglas. And on the other side of that, you know, you've got the interaction with local Milwaukee politics and the shifting demographics that this leads to. And then all the way to, you know, the more modern, the the legal battles over ownership in the in the eighties. It's just very interesting. I thought it was a very interesting story. And there's just a lot of it was the right mix of fact. You know, it was a very factual story in the sense that we know most of these events happened, but it still had a lot of that color that some of the history has from this time period. This, I guess we could draw a connection back somewhat to, to the Carl D. Bradley that we talked about last week, because the, the angle that I think is most interesting to me is the community impact of it. Kind of like what we saw, like in it, the situation is different, but we still see that that uh, very heavy impact on a localized community mm-hmm. um, and then seeing definitely like you said about the the way that almost changes the history or changes the development of a city like milwaukee so that, that, yeah. that was really uh, fascinating yeah i thought so too i think also being somewhat from milwaukee and familiar with the community i think that's another reason it jumped out at me is that you know you hear these stories of you know, this militia group based in the third ward and like you know <laughs> i know those streets and like i've been there and i've spent time there so yeah, it's uh, it was definitely an interesting story. I think it's one that uh, will resonate, and I hope everybody enjoys listening to it. Did you have any further thoughts or anything, or anything else you wanted to discuss? Uh, I want to add on that navigational negligence would mm-hmm. be an awesome name for a band, like a <laughs> like a sea shanty folk type band. So if we ever start one of those, it will be called navigational negligence. Noted. All right. That's really my only my only closing thought here. It's kind of a story that does at least have a sort of neat wrapped up ending. Uh, so there, there's there's not as much mystery in this as there is in some of the some of the stories that we've done. I don't know if we I don't know if we mentioned this. You you may have mentioned this right at the beginning of the episode, but I was I saw something that said that so this is the is this the the deadliest Great Lakes disaster that happened like out actually on the lake. Yeah, so reading through it, it basically depends on if you count the Eastland as a Great Lakes disaster. Right, so, and, and I guess that's what I was thinking, because that sank in the Chicago River. Correct, which so I like would it. not include as a Great Lakes uh, shipwreck myself. Mm-hmm. So this, But I think in order to kind of make sure that you're 100% correct, a lot of people I saw were saying that this was the greatest disaster in Great Lakes history in open water. But okay. to me... I don't. I wouldn't count the Eastland, but you're also kind of splitting hairs. Mm-hmm. Either way, the Eastland was bad. Yeah, so like, I think that's a. It's sort of interesting that you know, even even being living around the Great Lakes for the great majority of my life, and yeah, something like this, you know, the whatever worst open water disaster. And I really didn't even know that much about it. Right. So it's, it was cool to to learn a little bit more about that. Yeah, and that's yeah. Uh, that, that's all I've got. Yeah, for sure. It was uh, it was fun researching this one and learning a little bit more. But yeah, I think we can put a bow on this one. I think we've got it pretty well handled. I uh, appreciate everybody taking the time to listen and look forward to researching another one and uh, sharing with everybody next week. Hope everybody has a good week and thanks for listening.